Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Hey everyone, I am here with Andreas Tolias. Andreas is a professor of neuroscience at the Baylor College of Medicine. Andreas, welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. Thank you. How are you making out down there in Houston? It's good. You know, we're trying to survive, uh, trying to maintain our social distancing, but so far so good. Good, good, good. Why don't we get started by having you share a little bit about your background and, you know, in particular, how you came to work in kind of this, the, the nexus of neuroscience and AI. Did you come at it from the medical side or and biology side or from the computational yeah. side or, or a little bit of both? Yeah, mostly from the neuroscience side, yeah, okay. from the scientific side. Although I've, you know, I did my PhD at MIT in systems and computational neuroscience, and I always had an interest in how we can use our understanding of the brain to, you know, or test our understanding of the brain by mimicking its capabilities in behaviorals like such as visual perception maybe motor control and other things and decision-making. And um, so I've always had this interest in how do we bridge neuroscience and AI together? And at the same time, how do we use tools from machine learning, which are just, you know, other a form of statistical tools to analyze the huge amount of data that we are right now are capable of getting from the brain. So the sort of the information goes both ways in the sense of, we use tools from machine learning and AI to study the brain. And by understanding the brain, we hope to advance this field of AI. So that's sort of my background into it. But I myself, most of my training is in systems, neuroscience, and neurophysiology. You mentioned that we have access to lots of data coming from the brain. Where Where is that coming from? Is, is this like MRI type of information or? That many, many, I would say in the last 10 years, maybe a little bit longer, we have the capability because of new technologies and also, you know, things that we can parallelize record a huge amount of data from the human brain, starting from the human using fMRI, but now also like maybe high density, also human recordings from neurosurgical patients. But in particular, also in the animal, we in different animal species, we have new technologies to record large, very large numbers of neurons, either using electrophysiological methods or imaging, in particular two-photon imaging, and calcium imaging has enabled us to record, you know, there are now data sets that are in the order of 10,000 neurons recorded simultaneously from oh, wow. the brain of an animal doing a task. So, and, uh, and, and these data are huge in terms of both size and complexity. And, you know, we cannot just look at them to understand them. We have to analyze them. And one of the methods that we use to analyze them it's actually machine learning, and in particular, my team and my collaborators and also other people around the world are using deep learning to model the brain or model this data. So on the one hand, you can think of it like we have the technologies to record a huge amount of data. We have the tools now 
from machine learning and in particular deep learning to model this data and build predictive models of this data. And given that we have these predictive models, what we can do is that we can analyze the model in silico of the brain and run an unlimited almost number of experiments that we could not have done in the brain by itself in the first place. Mm-hmm. We formed a paradigm we call inception loops that where we start from an in vivo experiment, we'll build an in silico model of that system we want to study. In our case, it was the visual system of the mouse or the macaque. And then having this in silico model, we can ask questions that would have been very hard to ask without the model in the first place. So we can ask the model, for example, to find what are the optimal stimuli that these neurons that were recorded like. And then we we call it a loop because then we go back in vivo and test the predictions of the model and, you know, to falsify them or verify them. And that we can also, in principle, run this in multiple loops where we can improve the model. And so, so that's kind of where... You know, deep learning, one aspect where deep learning, which is a subset of machine learning, is helping us analyze and understand uh, the brain. So we've used this, uh, and we had a paper come out last year, where we've shown that a very old, you know, understanding of uh, the mouse visual system in this case, we found new principles of how it's organized. And in particular, we found that these early visual areas like primary visual cortex had preferences that seem much more complex than people had previously thought. So that's one area where deep learning and AI has helped our understanding of the brain. You mentioned earlier, you you kind of used modeling the data and modeling the brain interchangeably. You know, is that always the case that when you're modeling the data that you have somehow gotten that kind of describes things that are going off in a brain that you're building a model of the brain itself? Or uh, does that data always capture? I I think of the latter, like modeling the brain as kind of modeling its structure, whereas the data could be kind of absent of that structure. Yeah, well, it's both, right? So so the brain, modeling the brain, you can model it at different levels, right? Mm -hmm. You can, if we start on the top, you have the behavioral level. Okay. So you model behavior without necessarily trying to model the representations or, or faithfully model the representations that are happening inside the brain, either neurons. So you mm-hmm. could, let's say, build a model of human behavior and given a certain input to predict what how humans are going to be, behave. And cognitive neuroscientists, and psychologists have been doing this for many, many years, in many cases, very, very successfully. So you could, let's say, build a model that tries to predict, as I said, the human behavior, if you want, but with but being agnostic or not trying to faithfully capture the neural representations. Then if you go a level down, you could say, okay, I'm going to build a model that captures the behavior, but I'm going to I'm going to ask the model to also capture the neural representations of how that behavior came about. And and this is an interesting debate in the field because there are some people or ideas out there that say that once we impose that constraint, the behavioral constraint, then maybe all these models, without even trying too hard, they will start capturing these neural representations. Alternatively, there's many ways 
to solve a problem and the brain happens to be one specific solution. And for example, we know that, you know, if you take the field of, let's say, object recognition, there are other species that can do object recognition like birds, but they don't necessarily have the same architecture or the same structure as our brain. So they're, but they have some similarities and differences. So, so that becomes interesting. So you could say, I'm going to model the brain, and David Marr is famous for it because he came with these different levels of analysis where you can model it at the behavioral level or you can model it more at the representational level, which is by recording these thousands of neurons and trying to build a model that is not only achieving the right behavioral goals, but is achieving them through the right representations. And then you could even go at the incorporate another level where is the one you were talking about, where is the structure. You're saying the brain has specific wetware architecture and is relying on this specific architecture to achieve those representations, which in turn will achieve those behaviors. So if I want to fully understand the system in some ways, and in particular, if I want to be able to fix it, if it breaks down neuropsychiatric diseases, I have to go all the way to the implementation level details. Like, for example, I have to take into account that the brain has, you know, different layer. Let's say, you know, the cortex has different layers, different cell types, because there's evidence from, you know, work done in animal models of diseases and in human diseases that a lot of these um, diseases, mental diseases, affect specific circuits and specific parts of the brain or specific cell types because of, Often they are genetic underpinning. So if you want to build a model to understand how the brain achieves the behavior that it achieves, let's say I was talking now, you know, I saw you a couple of weeks ago. We still, I remember your face, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. If we want to understand it and be able to fix it in case it breaks down, we need to go down to the implementation level details. It's not enough to stay at the very high level because not fix it. Okay, so you've got these these different kind of levels of modeling the brain and you know essentially we're taking you know data from the the brain and using them to build these models at, at various levels to kind of ultimately inform our understanding of how you know either I guess it depends on what level you're at how humans are how humans work or how the brain is working and we're using machine learning and deep learning to kind of further that understanding. But you've also talked about going the other way where we're using what we know about the brain to enhance our understanding of machine learning and deep neural networks. Uh, and you recently wrote a, a, a survey paper on that work, Engineering a Less Artificial Intelligence. Can you kind of introduce uh, that work to us? Yes, yes. So what you know, with my colleagues and I, we wrote is a perspective on how or, or what some ideas or some approaches for neuroscientists and AI scientists and machine learning engineers to try and use neuroscience to advance AI and in particular deep learning. So just to give you, to put this into perspective, in this paper, first, we, we give an introduction into very brief historical introduction into what is now called deep learning. And in particular, underscoring the point that there are many approaches to solving AI or to from an engineering point of view, 
There's probably many different ways to achieve AI. But what seems right now, one of the most promising ones, which is old in the sense that people have been thinking about this since the 50s or 60s and 70s and so on, is by building what's called artificial neural networks. So it's saying that our brain, its key computational ingredient is a neuron and a synapse that is plastic. And that's how we learn, right? So if I have a neural network, and it performs some input-output nonlinear transformation, and I change the synapses, I can achieve computation. So the idea is that that's how the brain does it. So let's try and mimic that into and revert, you know, engineer systems that do something like that. And this has been the big revolution or success in the last 10 years in deep learning. That's how these networks are trained to play chess, Go, do voice recognition, how Alexa works, Siri. They have some sort of, at least part of it is some aspect of a neural network with a lot of engineering put into it to optimize it and make it work. And what we've learned also in the last 10 years, because we have very, very strong, you know, very good, uh, you know, fast computers and we can parallelize this, is that if you have a scenario, and I'll give you, let's say, an example, let's say you chess. And you allow two computers to play against each other. And they essentially play millions or maybe tens of millions of games that two humans could never play. Mm-hmm. And in these type of well-defined problems, humans cannot outcompete computers anymore. Even if these problems seem very, very difficult to us, like playing chess, go, you know, things that are, or doing very fine discriminations, as long as the computer has the ability to be exposed to a lot of training examples. And because it's running on silicon, it never gets tired. You know, you can parallelize it and run a, you know, on a supercomputer and it can play day and night for, you know, equivalent to probably thousands of years of what it would take a human. It's game over, right? They, they, they cannot, no human, I mean, it's very hard for humans to compete. Mm-hmm. Where the computers or deep learning fails right now is when you change the testing distribution, even slightly from the training distribution. Okay, And my, my colleague, Matthias Betke, who is a co-author on that paper, has done a lot of interesting work on this. And I'll give you one, and others, of course, but I'll give you one simple example. The One of the poster childs of deep learning is object recognition. People have trained, and the famous example is ImageNet. So you, there was a heroic effort where people sat down, they took maybe a million images, they label them into a thousand classes or more, you know, and then they train a neural network to say this is a bird, this is a dog, this is a cat, this is a car, mm-hmm. this is a bus, this is a spoon, and so on. And when you train these, you find that these networks become pretty good. I mean, not as good maybe as a human, but in some classes actually even better, like things that, you know, what type of bird it is maybe, and because most humans are not experts, a network can learn that even better. But they're very good, okay? And and we can use these and, you know, Google, if you go and do a Google search, they use algorithms like this. But if now the network has only seen clean images with no noise added into it, if you add noise into these images, even random noise, that to a human, it would not deteriorate our perception at all. We would still see it as a cat or as a dog. These networks get completely confused and they quickly go by chance performance. And one of the sort of puzzling thing that was discovered early on in the early days of deep learning 
is something called adversarial attacks. So if you take this image, if you take an image of a dog in the network, you can change a few pixels in a specific way that you can fool the network thinking that right now, that now it's a cat. And this is called adversarial attack. And this by itself, and, and these changes are imperceivable to a human. So they are so small changes. So the fact that these networks can get confused and be very confident that something that it's imperceivable to a human, which you can think of it as if I change a few pixels in an image, there's no way that the physical object out there changes, right? If I, if, because ultimately intelligence is about inferring what's the correct causes of the images that we experience, let's say in vision, right? So if I am in, in, in the jungle and I see a lion, I need to perceive it as a lion and not as, uh, you know, my child, right, uh, that I may be hiking with. So the fact that these things can get fooled so easily is a testimony that they're doing something qualitatively very different than the way human and animal brains work, okay? And to summarize it, it has to do with the way they get trained. It may have to do with the learning algorithm in particular. Or, or, or you know, but they're basically, they are... You, you can think of it, they are trained by a brute force approach where for a, a network to learn that this is a cat, it has to, the way it learns it, that this is a cat, its definition of a cat inside its hidden or latent representations seems to be very different than our representations because of, of this example. And that is why it seems to fail. Now, there are similarities in this very nice work done by a bunch of my colleagues, both in neuroscience and in AI that show there is quite a lot of similarities between our representation of these neural networks, but they also find, and we and others find a lot of differences. And I think there is a qualitative difference that is strong enough that makes them so prone to things like adversarial attack. Donald Rumsfeld once said there is the known knowns, the known unknowns, and the unknown unknowns. These networks are very bad in the unknown unknowns. If you if they're faced with a completely new situation. They, they do not know what to do with it. Whereas we humans are much more flexible, you know, and that is what gives us, right, and animals are also like that. There's also work in animal behavioral work that they can do it. So that's what gives biological brains a superiority in terms of their ability to generalize outside their training distribution. And the the paper or the perspective that we wrote is is trying to, make a proposition if you want, or what are the areas that neuroscientists can study the brain to extract what we call an inductive or also a model bias to then try and advance this field, you know, try and make machines uh, smart. And and we have some propositions, and it actually goes along, again, these three levels of David Marr, including a learning rule. We know that Right now, uh, the, the, the successes in deep learning have been with what we call supervised learning, mm-hmm. and some with reinforcement learning. But we, humans and animals, rely a lot on self-supervision, active learning or active learning, where we manipulate objects in the world. We, we do causal, if you want, manipulations in the world to try and understand how the vision works in the world so we can perceive it. And, um, you know, so you could imagine things at the behavioral level where you change, you build, let's say, a robot or you build some agent that tries to mimic a child the way they learn at this behavioral level and people are working on that. 
Or you can even go a step further down into this representational level and try and understand what are the principles, the way information is represented in the brain. And then you can go into the learning rule itself and also put even more architectural constraints. Now, another thing that is very interesting is like when we, we are born, in particular other animals, in, you know, a horse is born and it can immediately start galloping or, or not mm-hmm. galloping, but walking, right? Yeah. So we, we've learned at multiple timescales, including at the evolutionary timescale. So we do not come out as a blank slate necessarily. Like we have some capabilities and, and different animals have different capabilities depending on their, you know, uh, environment. So that's kind of the overall idea is like, how can we learn what we call the model bias or the inductive bias uh, from the brain, although those are not exactly the same, but they're related, to then transfer that information into a neural network of a device that will be able to generalize outside its training distribution better. And this is still a major challenge. I would say in the last 10 years, one area that deep learning has advanced very little is this outside of the training set generalization. And the way that people do it is by a brute force approach right now. Sure. Data augmentation and domain adaptation and things like that. Um, Kind of just throwing more data into the training set, whether it's real or artificial. Exactly. And that may work, again, if you're an engineer that works in Google or Uber and you want to build autonomous driving, you know, they are approaching the problem by that, okay, I'm going to like collect data in all kinds of conditions, rain, snow, clouds, you know, whatever, right? And then, and, and I think although it may end up working in the end, it's not very energetically efficient because you're not mm-hmm. really understanding true intelligence you're basically just getting humans to label more and more and more data until you cover the whole distribution and you're never going to be surprised. But that's not, I think, the most exciting area of AI. The most exciting area of AI is to figure out how to do this with a few examples and by trying to understand how the brain can achieve this. Yeah, yeah. You were careful to point out there that there's difference between inductive bias and model bias. Uh, can you elaborate on that difference and how it plays out in, in this scenario? Yeah, so the inductive bias or a learning bias comes from the, um, you, you, you can think of, let's say, two networks that have a different architecture and different nonlinearities, and they will have a different inductive bias. Okay, because they will, in a simpler way, you can think of it that I'm trying to fit some data. And if I have to rely, if, if my architecture gives rise to a particular order of a polynomial or another order of a polynomial, then that's an inductive bias. Mm-hmm. Then once you learn from the data, you also learn a model bias because if, and a good example is what you just said, the when you do data augmentation, you know, you're basically learning maybe a better model bias because you're getting trained now on an adversarial training is one example, right? Where you're now getting trained on many different uh, modifications or or, uh, augmentations of this data. And now you are better at generalizing. And people have shown that the best way to defend against adversarial attack is by, you know, training in an adversarial scenario, which is basically giving you a better model bias. Even if inductive bias in the architecture may be exactly the same. Now, the brain is very interesting because it does have a very strong inductive bias because, as I said, the horse is bored and it has some 
that network has not experienced the world. There is information is genetic code that wires it, and then you get a network that does something. So, you know, and then the experience fine tunes it and improves on it, but it has a very strong inductive bias. That's a proof that there is, if we were to understand the um, how to read out this inductive bias, you know, then we would be able to build smarter machines. Now, they, they, there's another complexity to this that the learning algorithm may be tightly intertwined with this architecture. So you may have the perfect architecture, but if you use a different objective function or different learning algorithm, you will not get now the, the right performance or the right model bias. So that's how these things are related. And so how, how are we doing on this task of learning from the, the brain and applying it to, uh, to deep learning? Yeah. I, I don't get the sense that a lot of the most important things that we've learned about making deep learning work, like, you know, dropout and, you yeah. know, learning rate tricks and things like that came from biological inspiration. Yeah, that is true. And this is, so it's very interesting because I think that's a very interesting question also from a, you know, at the larger scale, if you want, and, and, and I'll, I'll elaborate. So if you, if you try to understand the brain, right, and you say, you know, in our case, we try to understand vision and visual perception, right? In some ways, a good test of it would be be able to build a system based on what we think we understood that does vision, right? Because if I say, I understand how object recognition works in the brain, I've done some experiments in, you know, in humans, animals, whatever, and I've studied these principles, then my long-term goal or as a field should be, can we now assemble this principle into a system that mimics the behavior of the system that I'm trying to understand, right? And that is essentially what AI's goal is. You're saying from a, a neuroscience perspective, you know, we've got these models of, you know, cones and layers and all these yeah. things, yeah. you know, forget about this deep learning stuff. We should just take our models and kind of implement them and they should be better in theory. Yeah, in theory, in theory, we understand it. I mean, if we really understand, once we fully understand how vision works, mm-hmm. right, we should be able to reverse engineer it. We should be able to take all these principles, put them together. And it should perform the task that the human visual system does. I mean, that's sort of the, it's a very stringent test of our hypothesis, right? You have to mm-hmm. test them like that. Now, it may, I'm not saying it's going to be achieved in our lifetime, maybe, but who knows, or it could take many, many years, but that's the goal of neuroscience, right? Ultimately, not necessarily like now, but we are far away from that goal, right? I mean, it's very, you know, there's very, there's only sort of toy examples where we've taken these principles and we've shown that we can achieve robust vision, you know, that we can achieve, let's say, robust object recognition. And is that based on gaps in our understanding or our ability to implement what we understand? No, I, I think it's based on two things. I think, and, and this is a more pessimistic view, it's based on our gap of understanding principle. I mean, right now we've been doing more, and this is maybe, you know, it's a very difficult problem, right? And there's very there's a lot of technology I said earlier that gives us incredible capabilities to understand the brain, but new principles are much harder to understand, 
fundamental principles. And then we get lost in details. And we humans don't know how to, I mean, you know, we don't want to just copy it because you see there's a difference also between understanding and, I mean, if we could take the brain and copy it piece by piece, would maybe we would achieve what I just said, but it would still not be satisfying from a scientific point of view because it wouldn't be true understanding, right? Mm-hmm. If we just categorize the cones, the receptors, the wiring, and we just like copy it over and it works, what well, have we understood? It's like, I don't know, like it's like me copying a foreign language. I faithfully copied it, but understood nothing. So we don't want to do mm-hmm. that either. So that's why it's more complicated, right? We need to understand the principles that guide this organization. And then we may not even have to worry. Hopefully, we will not worry about all the details. You know, the way we understand the principles of flying and we build aeroplanes. That's kind of the idea. We don't try and copy every single feather of a bird. Now, on the other side, machine learning has been much more successful in building systems that work, right? Like, you know, what if you use an AI system, it's built by machine learning engineers and not by neuroscientists. And you're right that a lot of it is brute force engineering and often or most cases is also there's no understanding. It's not like people that do the engineering on the machine learning side. I mean, there is some understanding, but it's very, it's it's a lot of black magic, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like a black box approach. You tune things and then it makes it work. We do understand some principles and in some ways that's sort of maybe how the brain works too. Like, for example, a deep learning has the deep layers, it has the bug propagation, it's a principle. So I can we can write down a recipe of, you know, a few things that then when you train it, it will do stuff. But you're right that we haven't been very successful in translating neuroscientific understanding to machine learning in a direct way. It's mostly an inspirational way. Like if you talk to AI people, they say, oh yeah, I use reinforcement learning as an inspiration. I use, we call them deep networks, comes from neuroscience because we know that in the brain, There's many layers. You know, the first deep learning model was completely inspired by uh, Fukushima, who was a neuroscience, I mean, not a computational neuroscience person or inspired person that built. So there are fundamental ingredients in deep learning, but a lot of it is right now brute force engineering, okay, with a lot of ideas. So I do think that the dialogue is very fruitful. I mean, we ourselves have some ideas on how, we are trying to do this, and we had some papers and that are mentioned in that review too at the representational level, but it hasn't been, it's not a, you know, I think the big breakthroughs, let's say, in this field of taking, of understanding neuroscience principles, A, and B, translating them in a way that you show a qualitatively different performance in a machine learning case has not been demonstrated yet. I mean, I hope it will be, and hopefully soon, but I think that's going to be a major breakthrough because it will give us, if you want, the bridge on how to go from one to the other. But it's not easy. I agree with you. And uh, a lot of it, I think, comes from our inability to extract principles from neuroscience. So does your paper help us understand where we should be looking, um, You know, a framework for the different places where we might be likely to find this kind of insight? Yeah. I mean, there we are again drawing on three levels plus the learning. Um, On the behavioral level or on the cognitive level, you know, you can, and a lot, I mean, you know, this is not a new idea. And a lot of people in the field in machine learning are very interested in this and exploring it is when you 
you try and change the learning objective if you want. I mean, let me give you an example. Instead of, let's say, just learning object recognition by just giving labels, you could maybe give a few labels, but you could have an agent manipulate the objects, right? And maybe move them around and maybe break some every now and then. So you get an idea of the physics in the world. On the other level, and this is an area that we, my team and my collaborators were doing a lot of work on this, is trying to understand it at the representational level. We know that, let's say, the macaque or the human visual system was in the order of 30 visual areas. And although we know a lot about it, we also lack a fundamental, let's say, something that everybody agrees on. What is the role of all these different 30 areas? Why do we have 30 and not 5? Or why, you know, there's this idea of a ventral and dorsal stream. But then some people say, well, that's not quite true. Maybe it's like what motor and what, you know, like uh, it's more of an action stream versus a perception stream. So to understand how the brain does it, we have to record from individual neurons. And we have to have ways to, and and we've developed some methods based on deep learning, the system identification, the exception loops, to try and decipher what are the representations or the tuning functions of these neurons. And these are some mathematical principles that dictate these tuning functions, or do they look like they are not interpretable? I, I think one key thing here that we find both in neuroscience and in AI is the idea of interpretable AI or interpretable representation. And that's a struggle both for neuroscientists and machine learning people. Right. One right. theory in the field in both sides is that if you do not have interpretable, a, a colleague of mine actually, has a, a paper he's writing where he's trying to relate interpretability with robustness. So this idea that if we do not have interpretable systems and the representations are not interpretable, then A, it's going to be very hard to trust them necessarily. And this is an issue of deploying AI technologies, let's say, for radiology readings. Although others say, well, what do you care about? Maybe human-level interpretability is not possible, even in the brain. And we've kind of been fooling ourselves, you know, by saying, you know, we understand this area does this and this area does that, that is humanly interpretable. But I think that's an interesting uh, conversation and debate that we will see more of it, of interpretability. And I think if if there is such a thing as interpretability and we understand it in the brain, then it's going to be easier for engineers to like say, okay, now we know that thing exists. Let's try and figure out how we can put it in the brain. And that's at the representational level where we record from neurons. And this is what we did. Most of the, the, the perspective paper focuses on this representational level. If we need to figure out interpretability in the brain before we're able to get to interpretability or explainability in machine learning models, I think we're probably in trouble. Yeah, that is true. <laughs> and, but it's interesting, though, because the tools that people in machine learning are developing to gain interpretability. It's exactly the tools that we and others are trying to implement in the brain. So that's where there's a very strong link, again, between the two fields. Are there examples that come to mind of successes that we've seen already in um, you know, pulling over, understanding it, that we've gained on the machine learning, deep learning side to the neuroscience side? Yeah, so we had a paper in NIPS last year, uh, Julie was the first author. And what Ju did is he took um, recordings, in this case, from the mouse visual system, 
and sh- and build we build a model actually this inception loop model and then we generated a similarity matrix basically we showed let's say a thousand natural images to the model and we computed the similarity matrix between image i and image j in the models in the brain models neural space okay mm. And then we took a neural network and we tried, instead of just teaching it to say cats and dogs, we also tried to make its representations to look more similar in terms of these representational similarity metrics to the ones we measure in the brain. So in in some ways, you can think of it like if you have a deep neural network, you, you have some loss on the top layer, which is what's the class. But all this stuff, all these latent variables are let free to do whatever they want, right? So we try to put some constraints in these middle layers and say, let's try in one of these layers to make it look a little bit more like the brain of a mouse. Okay. And what we found was that that model became more robust to perturbations. It was interesting because it became more robust to high frequency noise perturbations, which we are now studying and we can explain in a simpler way that it may be like, you know, the mouse is more sensitive to low spatial frequencies, but this is an at least a proof of concept that, you know, even if this case, it may be a simpler scenario that you should, if you, you know, that you could learn something at the representational level in a system and then translate it over. We have the tools to sort of move it over because if we have a model of the brain that is a deep neural network, and it's trained on data, and then we have a neural network model that tries to do object recognition. They're both models. They're both built of the same ingredient, which is neurons with synapses in silico. Mm -hmm. So we can try and now transfer information from one to the other. Now, that's still not, even if we're, in my personal taste, even if we were to do this and we would achieve, you know, something incredible, let's say, solar serial attack, it would still not be very satisfying if we don't understand why it's solving. You know, the, the, the mere copying operation itself, you know, it may work, but for me personally to be satisfied, I would like to understand why it's working. And, uh, and um, which again goes back to the some aspect of interpretability in some ways. Uh, you're, it, it almost kind of points to this at least your 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 limited experiment you know kind of calls to mind this future where instead of pulling a uh, you know building a network up from convolutional layers and pooling layers where you know I'll you know use a mouse layer and a flatworm layer and a yeah. macaque layer yeah, and that kind cool. of thing yeah yeah and and I think the, the other thing is to show the utility of these systems, we need to come also with the right machine learning benchmark tasks. And right mm-hmm. now, the, the focus in machine learning in the last 10 years has been, again, to create benchmark tasks that were very difficult in the 90s and in the 80s for computers, like object recognition, right? Mm-hmm. But there hasn't been as much, or there's more now, but where you train, you know, you want to build a visual system that does all the possible visual tasks. Right, it does segmentation, object recognition, motion tracking, action recognition. It can work with video. It can work with static image, like the way a biological system works, right? And from a, and it may also have to do with who is working on the problem. Like if you have engineers, especially working in a company that they want to build autonomous driving, they don't care if that system 
the study object recognition because they'll never be tested on static images, right? You know, or that same system is not the one that's going to talk to you to the driver, right? Maybe so. But from a, if you are interested from the AI, more scientific AI is a science and not as an engineering field. You want to understand which is the same as neuroscience in some ways. What are the principles that enable the same network? to perform all these tasks and also do transfer learning from one task to the other very fast. One of the, the areas that's seeing some interesting research on the machine learning side is uh, the idea of multitask learning. So you know, we can train these networks to uh, do two things at the same time instead of one or end things at the same time instead of one. And there, um, you know, that somehow has this kind of regularizing, you know, effect yes. that makes them perform better. Is there any kind of biological inspiration to that or biological parallel to, to that? Yeah, yeah. And actually, we discussed that in the paper also, multitask training. And um, when we see the world, we don't just do object recognition. We we know the <laughs> curvature of an object, the distance of the object. We can grasp it. We, we have some idea about the, the texture uh, you know, we, we can do multi-scale perception, like we can look at an individual, you know, eyebrow on someone's face and also recognize their face. We can, uh, you know, uh, do, you know, figure out if someone is sad, happy. So we do a multitask, multifutural uh, embedding. And if you want, the same brain is doing all these things. So, that's one of the areas where we think the brain is very different than a machine. And I think there are people that are saying, okay, maybe we should like, if we train one network on all the tasks, maybe we'll generalize also better, it will be more robust, it will be, you know. So that's sort of a, um, an interesting direction that we and others are interested in. You, you kind of, you're absolutely right. That's very important. The, the problem again becomes how do you train this because if you rely on human labeling all this data, then you need to like have humans label the color, the tech, and then you are sort of again limited by, you know, yeah. But you could like approach it in a brute force approach at least in toy examples to show that this is the right direction. Is there any one particular direction in kind of this entire space, biological systems to deep learning, deep learning to biological systems that you're most excited about? It's a good question. I, I think that I'm mostly, I think right now in the next few years, the most exciting directions are at the cognitive or behavioral level and at the representational level because of, a, you know, like, and it may be a practical thing because we we have good baseline models that relay, they have a cost function, what they're training. And they have representations that we can measure, right? And I'm mostly excited about these two higher levels in terms of building models that are going to get information at best or inspiration in a more, in a less maybe ambitious way from the brain to advance AI. If you go down to the implementation level, although I think that's, you know, it may happen at some point. There's too much complexity down there. And we don't understand why there is this complexity. It could be implementation. It could be 
biological way we are constraints, for example, energy constraints, like, you know, the brain has chemistry and it doesn't have silicon. And then synapses need neurotransmitters because of biology. And then you build all this complexity. So trying to like understand, you know, without a clear understanding, and, and, and I mean, the classical argument is even the spike, right? Neurons have spikes, neural networks don't. There are no spiking networks. You know, so people are still debating and there hasn't been, let's say, golden success in spiking networks that can do something that, you know, the standard neural networks cannot do. So I would say the first higher two levels at least right now, in the next few years, are more promising in my mind to see these um, transfer of knowledge. Well, Andreas, thanks so much for sharing with us uh, what you're working on. Uh, really great to speak with you. Thank you for having me and have a nice day. Thanks, Andreas. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.